in the Old Testament book, uh, Lamentations. <clears throat> Lamentations this morning. Started uh, the end of last year before we went to the really to the holiday season. The Lord touched my heart about this concept of revival, crying out for revival, seeking God for revival. What is revival? And we kind of took a pause. Um, I just I felt like there was a lot of distractions with the holidays to zero in on that. And um, but as we kick off the new year, I wanted to pick it back up, and we'll probably we'll probably wrap it up next week. But um, you know, there's a lot of things that uh, when we talk about revival, read books on revival, I've studied uh, the Great Awakening in America and some of the things that led up to that, and, and different revivals recorded in history, of course, in the Bible. And um, one thing, you know, I, 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 I quoted this before, but, uh, you know, it's been said, uh, you know, the reason we don't have revival, of course, Leonard Ravenhill said, that we, the reason we don't have revival is because we can live without it. Uh, others have said, uh, you know, are we willing to pay the price for revival? And... Uh, and uh, this morning I want to challenge us with this. Are we willing to weep for revival? Uh, of course, Lamentations is a book about weeping. And I, I really believe if you, could, if you could squeeze the Bible, and uh, what you would wring out you know, are tears. The Bible is really a book of tears. Uh, throughout scriptures, you find, uh, you find a, lot of, a lot of weeping, a lot of tears. In fact, over 500 times the word weep or wept or some form of that uh, show up in the Bible, and it, not counting all the times it mentions um, uh, groanings, not mentioning times that it uh, mentions even uh, tears itself or broken hearts. David, of course, mentioned it often in the Psalm, Psalm 6, verse 6, I am weary with my groaning all the night. I make my bed to swim. I water my couch with my tears. In Psalm 42, verse 3, my tears have been my meat day and night. While they continually say to me, where is thy God? And, and David, of course, was no, no stranger to weeping, to crying out to God, even with tears. Uh, I think about uh, tears were often shed for the work of God. And in, um, uh, Paul often mentioned uh, crying out in Acts 20, verse 19, serving the Lord with all humility of mind and with many tears and temptations uh, which befell me by, by the lying weight of the Jews. We see over and over again tears. Uh, of course, Paul cried for a lot of things. He cried for, uh, um, uh, for Timothy, who was struggling in his, uh, in his service. In 2 Timothy, he talks about uh, he cried for him, and he was mindful, of course, of Timothy's tears. He cried for people who left the faith. He cried for churches. Uh, he talked about writing the second letter uh, to, uh, to the Corinthian church. Uh, uh, mentioned the tears that he shed as he was writing the, his other letters, and uh, he didn't want to come again with sorrow as he was very sorrowful for what the church of Corinth was going through. He cried for Israel itself. He wanted to see them saved, and, and the unbelieving uh, Jews, he, he wanted to, uh, to see them respond properly, and he wept for them. Think about in the Bible, it talks about praying for, or crying for unanswered prayer. Think about Hannah in the Old Testament, prayed continually, coming to God again and again and again, that God would give her a child. There was tears for severed relationships, as Jonathan and David thought they'd never see each other again, and they wept in, uh, as they departed. Tears over tough circumstances. Of course, the book of Job references tears over and over again as Job went through his trial. You know, there are tears in hell. The Bible describes the hell as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. By the way, there is a heaven, there is a hell, and, uh, and uh, hell is a very real place. It's amazing how many people say, well, there's no, really no such thing as hell. There's no such place as hell, and, and uh, it's metaphorical maybe in Scripture. It'll say different things like that, try to reason it away. Oh, it's a very real place. Uh, Jesus settled the argument in Luke 16 when he talked to the rich man. He says, and in hell, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment. By the way, there's tears in hell. 
Lord God, that we would pray for those who are on their way there. That we would weep some tears for those. Isaiah 53 describes Jesus as a man of sorrows. In fact, we sang just earlier, uh, uh, what a friend we have in Jesus. Uh, talks about uh, Jesus uh, sharing our sorrows. Man of sorrows. What a name for the Son of God. Um, John 1, uh, 11, 35, of course, shortest verse in the Bible, which is what? Jesus wept. Jesus wept. He knows what it is to cry. I want to ask you this question. When was the last time that you wept? When was the last time that you wept? I'm not talking about because, you know, you went through a tough time or because, you know, things that cause us to cry or, you know, you saw an emotional movie or, you know, your team won the super or the football game or, or whatever. I mean, when was the last time you wept? If the Bible is so full of tears, how come our lives are not? You know, we ought to cry because we don't cry. It ought to, it ought to bother us that there, are, that there are no tears over our sins. It ought to bother us there are no tears over uh, the lost, uh, our lost loved ones. It ought to bother us about the calamity of our nation. It ought, it ought to bother us uh, uh, that, that, that it doesn't bother us. We've become, we've become very cold, and Christians, no doubt, have become cold. You know, water is trapped in ice. Ice, especially when it's, you know, 15 below outside, it's supposed to be 30 below, 30, uh, uh, 30 below to, later tonight. Uh, you're not going to get much water out of the, out of the ice. It's, it's trapped in there. It's frozen. And unless ice gets melted, there's no leaking water. And I think, I think for many of us, there's no tears in our eyes because there's ice in our heart. It's, it's trapped inside, and... You know, may God uh, give us a revival of tears. I think that's what would uh, uh, really let loose the power of God. If we come before him and we cry and we weep, if you did a study in the scriptures about all the times uh, people crying out to God, call unto me and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things I know is not. Uh, the, the cry of the saints uh, gets a hold of God's heart. For those of you with children, you know the difference between you know, your child crying uh, because they just want to get their way or uh, whining about something or their sibling took a toy. And then the cry that caused you to drop everything and run to them because you know something's really wrong. Uh, that's a different cry. You know, and a parent knows uh, that's not a normal cry. I need to immediately uh, draw my attention to that. And there's just something about God, uh, God uh, seeing his children, his people in need, and, and crying out to him, calling out to him that, that grabs a hold of him. And remember over and over again, the nation of Israel, they're, they're in Egypt. And, uh, and he says, I've heard the cry of my people. Now, they've been crying for some time, but there was something about this cry that got his attention. I've heard the cry. It's come up to me. I, it caught my attention. And it's not that God didn't know something was happening, but there's something about that where he says, I have heard the cry of the afflicted. I've heard their cry. Someone once said, whatever happened to anguish in the house of God? Whatever happened to anguish in ministry? Anguish means extreme pain and distress, emotion so stirred that it becomes painful. It is, uh, it is acute, deeply felt pain of the conditions about you, in you, or around you. Do you realize that revival in the Bible is revolved around tears? Many of the great revivals we read about is about there were tears, and there's humility, and there was sackcloth and ashes. Nehemiah, in verse number, or chapter 1, verse 4, it says, And it came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Yeah, Nehemiah got the report of the state of Israel, of Jerusalem rather, and how the walls were torn down and the city was desolate. And when he heard this report, 
uh, it was brought before him uh, before he ever preached and before he ever started taking action, before he thought, what can I do? He fell on his face before God and began to weep for Jerusalem. Ezra, the contemporary of Nehemiah, uh, really about the same mission in Ezra 10, verse number 1. It says, Now when Ezra had prayed, and when he had confessed, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, there assembled unto him out of Israel a very great congregation of men and women and children, for the people wept very sore. Ezra, of course, was pointing out the fact that the, the priests had, had taken pagan wives and they departed from the law of God. And, and, uh, and uh, he was so bothered about this. Uh, we find in the book of Ezra, uh, of Ezra that Ezra at some point stood upon a pulpit of wood, and they got back to declaring and preaching the law of God, and the congregation came together. They were done. They were fed up with the, with the coldness and the complacency that had, that had uh, overtaken them, and they listened very tenderly, and they responded with amen. But he wept before he did any of that. He wept. Lamentations here is a book of tears, really. Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. Jeremiah's uh, ministry spanned several decades. He preached under uh, different, or he, uh, he was there, prophesied under uh, several of the kings. And um, his preaching, his ministry started under Josiah the king. What's interesting about Jeremiah, known as the weeping prophet, is that he, he, uh, he preached during times of revival. That was Josiah's day. He preached during times of refreshing in Israel. But he ended his ministry as Israel was taken in captivity off to Babylon. Now think about that, that's one man's ministry. It was one man's lifetime. Think about how quickly a nation can turn and how quickly things can start to fall apart in one man's lifetime, in one man's ministry. And he saw it all. A preacher who saw, saw the best of the best when he saw the worst of the worst. That's Jeremiah who wrote the book of Lamentations. Jeremiah saw the fire come down. He saw people change. He saw a response to the preaching. But he saw, he saw times where people heeded his word. But he saw times where they literally took his word that God gave him and threw it in the fire. We're not going to have that. In fact, it got so bad that at one point they, they took Jeremiah captive, put him in stocks. Jeremiah didn't want to preach anymore. That's how bad he was treated. He'd been through it all. Lamentations is written in a post-exile. And as this prophet, now looking at the people who have lost everything, he looks at the body bags of women and of children. He, he sees everything going on, and he's, he's thinking, if you would just have listened to me, if you would have just listened to, to what God was trying to tell you. And now at this point, there's no more sermons to preach. There's no prophecy to be given. All that's left is just to sit down and weep. So that's what he does with the book of Lamentations. In fact, in Jeremiah 13, verse number 17, says, But if you will not hear... My soul shall weep in secret places for your pride. And mine eyes shall weep sore and run down with tears because the Lord's flock is carried away captive. That was the heart of Jeremiah. Hey, if you're not going to hear it, I'm just going to go weep in a secret place because of your pride. Because you would not listen to God's warning. You would not, you would not heed the warning. And so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to go weep. I'm going to cry. And it's not like, you know, oh, they, they rejected me, so I'm just going to go and sit alone. Nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. I'll go eat some worms. But he was so broken for God and for God's people. All throughout the book of Lamentations, you see tears. I didn't even read the text. I was going to read that in the beginning. I just jumped right into it. But look at verse number 1 in Lamentations 1. Here's Jeremiah. 
How doth a city sit solitary that was full of people? How she become as a widow? She that was great among the nations and the princes among the provinces, how has she become tributary? She weepeth sore in the night. Her tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she hath none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They are become her enemies. Judah has gone into captivity because of the affliction and because of a great servitude. She dwelleth among the heathen. She findeth no rest. All her persecutors overtook her between the, the straits. The ways of Zion do mourn, because none come to the solemn feast. All her gates are desolate, her priests sigh, her virgins are afflicted, and she is in bitterness. Her adversaries are the chief, uh, her enemies prosper, for the Lord hath afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children are gone into captivity before the enemy. Jump over to verse number 12. This is the question to ask us. Jeremiah says, Is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? Is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? In other words, if we were to say, put it in our vernacular today, he'd say, Does it bother you that it doesn't bother you? And every one of us can look around and see the state of the church, see the state of Christianity, see the state of our nation. And intellectually, it bothers us. But is it bothering us? Let's pray. Ask God's help this morning. Our Father, I pray that you'd help us as we look at these passages. Lord, I pray that you would send warmth to our cold hearts. That you'd open the floodgates of our eyes. As Jeremiah said, oh, that my eyes were as fountains. Lord, may we weep. May we be broken. Help us to seek you on a level that you really desire. Wilt thou not revive us again, that the people may rejoice in thee. Please help us now, Lord. I pray that this morning it would just be you. It would just be your Holy Spirit ministering to us today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Is it okay that there are no tears? Does it bother us? Can you look at this, this, uh, this pitiful revival of this country and not be stirred? And, uh, and, and uh, only, only a revival of tears will revive the barren ground of our country can soften up hearts. As we, as we read this text, or this passage here in, uh, in Lamentations, uh, can you not see the parallels? Can you not see what we are even dealing with as we look around us and say, wait a minute, uh, the devil has, has won some great victories and, and uh, we are being taken captive in many regards. And, and, uh, and there's definitely uh, some slain in our own nation and, and round about us. Now, I want to be careful because it's so easy to, to often draw the parallel between Israel, God's chosen people, and America, God's chosen nation. I say that tongue-in-cheek. America is not God's chosen nation. But when we look at uh, what Israel represented, and we look at what America was started as and what America represents, we can say there are definitely some things, and we'll get into that in just a minute, that, that, uh, that, that, uh, that we ought to take very seriously as we consider this. But, but, but here's the question that, that Jeremiah poses 
in, uh, in Lamentations 1, verse 12. Is it nothing for you, all ye who pass by? When you consider the state we're in, when you look around us, when you, when you see things that are going on, you, know, you turn on the news, and uh, let me say, when you read through the prophets, by the way, in the scriptures, and then you look at the news, it, it, I, I tell you what, the parallels are just, uh, just glaring. And you look around and you see what's going on, and you ask God, how long, Lord? <laughs> how long? Something's got to give here. Something's got to happen. As we look at this text, we ask the question, well, what was, what was Jeremiah weeping over? What was he so broken over that his eyes were like fountains? What was it? I think there's four things that, 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 that uh, Jeremiah wept over that we today ought to weep over if we're going to see a revival. Notice the, the first thing. We should weep over the state of our land. We see that in verse 1. He says, how, long, or, or, how did the city sit desolate that was full of people? How will she become as a widow, she that was great among the nations and princes among the provinces? How has she become tributary? What was he crying about? He was crying about a couple of things. First of all, he was crying about what the city was. When you think back about the history of the nation of Israel and the history of, of, uh, of these people, we see great victories. We see all the things that God had brought them through. You think about the, uh, how many times God even brought to their attention, attention the captivities in Egypt. He says, how I delivered you out of a mighty hand. As Wes was talking in Sunday school about the plagues and, and, uh, and all the things, as he brought the people, the people through and, and the details that he gave them. You know, what's amazing, when you, when you know God and you study the God of the Bible, it's so different from all the other deities that are out there, so-called. Uh, many, many of them out there, it's sort of, uh, I think about Allah, he's very disconnected from his people. There's this great fear driven in the sense of a, uh, of a, of a, of a terror, a non-personal kind of a thing. And, uh, you know, they call him Allah the merciful, but there's no mercy. You're not going to find any mercy in the Quran. Uh, Muhammad himself did not know where he stood at Judgment Day. Think about that now. Compare that to what John said, who is known as the Apostle of Love, talked much about the love of God. He said, these things are written unto you that you might know that you have eternal life. But God did not just sort of set things in motion and went hands off. He says, I'm very involved because I love you. And he took a people who was no people. They were, they, were, they, were the, they were the small group. They were the, they were the, the, you know, God goes over this many times as he reached down and chose Abraham. And out of Abraham was going to make of him a, a great nation. And this nation was little among all the people. And they were, they were not, uh, uh, yeah, God did amazing things. And God brought them up and made them a people. Made all the nations fear. Nations with huge armies. In fact, in fact God with one fell swoop knocked out the most powerful military in the world at the time. And then they go in their first battle, still not knowing really yet how to fight. They fought a couple battles in the wilderness. Well, they come along and they simply march around some walls of a mighty city. And God does something. And God takes care of them. And for 40 years of wandering in the desert, because of their rebellion, God still took care of them. And, they, and their, their, their clothes didn't wear out. And their sandals grew with the kids' feet. And, and manna came down from heaven and, and uh, water from a rock. And God took care and God provided for them. And when they crossed over to the promised land, the new generation comes up. And uh, he said, we need to set up some memorials because you're going to have some kids. And they're going to say, what is this all about? Well, let me tell you what God did in the wilderness. Let me tell you what God did bring us out of Egypt. Let me tell you some of these things. And God was very much involved in their life. And you think about the, how, they, how he came through and God said, as, as he starts to lay out some of these principles and some of these laws for them, he says, listen, guys, you're going to be tempted to follow after some of these other nations' gods. In fact, don't let your young men marry the women of these other nations because it will pull their hearts to their gods. You can start wanting what other nations wanted. So you know what? In fact, 
Don't even say the names of those other gods. That's a pretty good principle. Because if you don't say the name, you're probably not going to worship. I think about... Uh, <laughs> um, I think Carrie was telling me about this. Uh, you came across, when you were a little kid, came across a, an old beer can. It was trash. And you were, like, afraid to touch it. Because, you know, you don't want your mom to see you with a beer can. Even though it's all crushed and rusted, right? You're thinking, oh, you know. And uh, it's like, well, me, there's, no, there's no temptation to drink that thing. It's, it's rusted, <laughs> okay? It's, it's, it's crushed. But, but, but when it's been so ingrained in you, you're like, this is wrong. I shouldn't even touch this thing. You see? Uh, that's kind of like the idea. I said, don't even say their name. And what happens? They start kind of going after these other gods. Uh, God said, I will be uh, a father to you, and you will be my people. Let me be your king. He said, well, we want kings like the other nations. We want to be like them. And, and, uh, and, and over and over again, they kept tempting God and trying God and saying, God, I know you have your ways of blessing and your ways of doing things, but we're going to go our way. And so, so over and over again, they started going their way and going their way. And here's Jeremiah at the very end, kind of the last chance here. They saw revival. They saw God bring some things out as they, they, they tore down the high places under Josiah. They, uh, they, 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 they tore down uh, the, uh, the, the altars and, uh, and, and drove out uh, the, the, uh, those that would cause Israel to sin and to go astray. And they turned to God. They read the word of God and, and they, 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 they rented their clothes and they wept and God brought revival in the land. Jeremiah saw that. And God started through the prophet Jeremiah, started telling them, listen, start warning them. Their hearts are getting cold again. Their hearts are starting to lust again. Their hearts are starting to go other directions. Warn them, warn them, warn them. He warned them. They locked them up. He warned them, they didn't listen. He warned them, and they tore up his word. So God took them away. He thinks about the greatness of Israel and what they were. He thinks about Solomon and all of his glory. He thinks about King David, the great king. He thinks about all these things that the children of Israel went through. Times of full of revival and full of energy and life. But then he thought about what the city now is. What did the city sit solitary that was full of people? Or how does the city? He contrasts what the city was and what now is, and it's desolate, and the walls are torn down, and everyone's rejected God, and that's why they are the way they are. He gives a few examples of the condition that they are now in. They're like slaves in chapter 1, verse 1. Like a widow, chapter 1, verse 1. No one was there to comfort her, chapter 1, verse 16. Her children are to become uh, uh, the household of vessels to use, be used by the enemy at their will, chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. Many have died by the sword, chapter 2, verse 21 and 4, verse 9. Many have been carried into exile, chapter 1, verse 3 and 5 and, and 18. The women have been taken, been raped, uh, chapter 5, verse 11. Public leaders have been, uh, uh, their, their, their leaders have been publicly humiliated, chapter 5, verse 12. The young men are forced to perform hard labor in uh, chapter 5, verse 13. Many of the unfortunate survivors, including babies, are dying from starvation. In fact, some even ate their own children because they were so starved, so hungry. They were like orphans. They were like widows. God wasn't even answering their prayers, and that was probably the worst part. They would cry and heard nothing. In fact, they were worse off than Sodom and Gomorrah because they at least had a witness. Jesus talks about that in his earthly ministry. He talks about uh, it'll be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for these. Why? Because Sodom and Gomorrah did not have a prophet. Sodom and Gomorrah had no Bible. Sodom and Gomorrah had no warning. 
It's better uh, in eternity to be judged having never heard uh, than to be judged having heard and rejected. This list that I just mentioned, does it remind you of some things? Does it remind you as we look around our own nation? We look at uh, where we were as a country. We look at where we are as a country. And here's the question, does it bother you? Does it bother us? Is it nothing to you, all ye who pass by? This land that we live in, this land that had experienced prosperity, this land uh, that had no doubt had God's blessing. I think about Washington, D.C. My wife and I have had a chance to go there a couple times. And you look around and you see uh, the clues, the things left behind by many of our founders. Uh, they wanted to be very intentional that generations to come will know exactly where we stood, know exactly what we stood for. It's amazing, this whole, it's almost like they knew people were going to come along and try to revise history. So you know what we're going to do? We're going to chisel some things in marble. We're going to engrave it in stone. So what are, they, what are they doing today? They're tearing down monuments. It's another topic for another time. I think about just some of the monuments. The Lincoln Memorial, on the side of the Lincoln Memorial, it says this, The words of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Of course, he's quoting from Psalms there, but uh, that was directly from one of his speeches. Arlington National Cemetery, uh, uh, cro- hills with crosses upon crosses. The Tomb of the Unknown Soldier says this on it, Known but to God. Washington Memorial on the top of it says, Praise be to God. In the National Archives Museum, there's a bronze medal of the Ten Commandments. In the U.S. Capitol, uh, in the main rotunda, there's George Washington and some preachers there uh, painted inside there, and there's a prayer meeting going on in these massive paintings, prayer meetings. Why would, the, why would in the rotunda, talking about the history of America, do you have a picture of this prayer meeting going on in the Capitol? You have, you have, uh, you have this prayer meeting. You have, you have uh, 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 the pilgrims carrying a Geneva Bible. You have a painting. I love this one of Pocahontas being baptized in the rotunda, in the Capitol building. Why would these be the things that they chose to hang up in the rotunda, in the capital of America? Inside Congress, over the Speaker of the House, is engraved in God we trust. Directly opposite of where the Speaker stands, you have uh, uh, up in the top of the Congress... You have all these busts of philosophers and great leaders of history and all this stuff, but directly uh, across from where the speaker stands is the only bust that, is a, uh, that, 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 that shows the full face, and it's the face of Moses. And under every, uh, as every law is passed, they must consider uh, uh, from, where, from where law comes, and then the, the, the one from whom it comes, and, and as, as our country was founded uh, on not just by religionists, but on the gospel of Jesus Christ, they put, intentionally put Moses' face so that every time... Um, Every time they vote and every time they consider a bill uh, for a law uh, that would come through, they have to consider the one from whom law comes from, the originator of law. And he's looking down there at Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> Thank the Lord she's not the speaker anymore, but uh, other issues going on, no doubt. At the Supreme Court, you've got Moses with the Ten Commandments. George Washington said, God who gave us life gave us liberty. Can the liberties of a nation be secure when we have removed a conviction that these liberties are a gift from God? If, you, if you've just done a, a, even a cursory, if you have just a, just a basic understanding of American history, you know, before the revisionists got a hold of things, you know that we can go on and on about these things. You'd know what uh, 
Alexis de Tocqueville said when he, or meant when he said, America is great because America is good. And when America stops being good, she'll stop being great. Well, what do you do when good becomes relative? What do you do when morality becomes relative? I think you'll see what we're seeing when the goodness is going out the window. Is America good? Start to understand a little bit of the whole Make America Great Again movement. When you understand that America is great when America is good, we understand we've got to get back to those founding principles. We see where America was, but we see where we're at today. And can I say, the wicked shall be turned to hell and all the nations that forget God. It will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for America who had a witness. can't go anywhere in this country without seeing corruption. Vulgarity everywhere we go, and Christians are being more and more uh, outcast and ostracized and unwelcomed in, uh, in, in, in our culture today. Really discredited and discounted. When, when, um, when people are being considered for a position uh, on the Supreme Court or, or from one of the, uh, one of the positions uh, appointed appointments, um, and, uh, and the concern that is raised is, I think they're too strong of a Christian, we're in trouble. You know what our founders said? They said we should prefer Christians to rule us. I think James Madison said that one. We should prefer Christians to rule us. Where have we come? We've complained about it. We all recognize it. We all nod our heads. But have you cried about it? Have you petitioned God about it? See, where are the people of God today that are willing to toil and take it before Him? To, to, to cry out to God and shed some tears, shed some, 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 some God-fearing, patriotic tears for our land, not because we want to be rich, not because we want to be successful, not because we want to have all these things, but because we want God to be honored again. We want God to bless America. But before God could ever bless America, we need to get to the place where America turns back to God. How can God bless something in a void, much less uh, uh, who's antagonistic to Him? Oh, we want God's blessings, but we don't want Him. That's the problem right there. That is the problem with 21st century Christianity. We want the blessings of God, but we don't want the God of the blessings. Does the state of our land bother you? Here's Jeremiah weeping, because he knows the potential of his nation. He knows what God, he knows that the God that they serve is the one true God, but they're not serving Him. And it broke his heart. Second thing, we weep for the state of our land. We ought to weep for the sins of our land. Look at verse number 8. Jeremiah 1, verse number 8. Jerusalem hath grievously sinned. Therefore she is removed. All that honored her despise her. Think about that now. All that honored her at one point now despise her. Because they have seen her nakedness. Yea, she, uh, she sigheth and turned away backwards. And backward. Verse 9. Her filthiness is in her skirts, and she remembereth uh, not her last end. Therefore she came down wonderfully, she had no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy hath magnified himself. When we look at this, I think about two things to consider as, as uh, he's weeping over the land and how we ought to weep over our land. 
Jeremiah was weeping over, uh, over their sins, of their public sins, first of all, the public sins. All throughout the book of Lamentations, we had time, we would just read through the whole, the whole book of Lamentations. But he wept for, their, uh, for the injustice that was seen in chapter 3, verse number 34. He wept over uh, their public sins of making alliance with foreign enemies, which God said never do this. But uh, these were enemies that they never should have trusted in chapter 4, verse 17. They, uh, their public sins of violence that had taken over Jerusalem uh, in uh, chapter 4, verse 13. Misleading uh, promises of false prophets in chapter 4, verse 2 and 14. <clears throat> in fact, in, um, in, uh, uh, they got so wicked and so vile. I think about uh, 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 some, some examples in Scripture uh, back in Judges chapter 20. You don't have to turn there. But there was a man traveling with his concubine. This, uh, uh, this man, uh, the wicked men of that city, the Sodomites that are around about, they wanted, uh, they wanted him to come out. They wanted to take this man. And what he did was, instead of, uh, uh, instead of protecting uh, what he had, he, uh, he offered them his concubine. And these wicked and violent, perverse men, they, they used her up until she was dead. Left her on his doorstep. In the morning, he gets up, very casually walks past her. Get up, we're going. Realizes she's dead takes his concubine, cuts her up into 12 pieces, and sends her body parts to the 12 tribes of Israel. This so troubled the nation. You know what they did? In Judges 21, verse 2, it says, And the people came to the house of God and abode there till even before God and lifted up their voices and wept sore. Folks, you know, that's what we need to be doing when we see such egregious sins taking place in our nation. When you see such vileness and such wickedness, when people are parading in the streets literally saying, we are coming for your children, when, when we are praising abominations and we are praising uh, uh, the, 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 um, the vile, uh, um, I'm trying to think of the word, the blasphemy that is taking place in, uh, in spitting in the face of God and so degrading Him, uh, saying, well, you know, God's trans. We need to come to the house of God. And we need to weep till even. When we see such egregious sins taking place in our nation. Even such wickedness that even takes place in churches. The public sins of our nation and of our land should affect us. It should cause us to weep and to, to confess before God. We see Ezra did this. We see Nehemiah did this. We see this over and over again when the prophets, they would confess the sins of the nation as though it was their own. And can I tell you, it's on our watch. If the believers today will not be the watchmen for this generation, who will? Who will? Uh, someone else's job. I, I'm not the one that invited uh, the sodomites in. I'm not the one that invited the, the abortion clinics in. Okay, well, who's going to take responsibility then? Because if I read my Bible right, wicked people are going to do what wickedness does. But you and I are called to be the salt and the light of the earth. Have we wept? Have we wept before God? We see he, he's broken over these public sins, but then personal sins. Look at verse 8 again, Lamentations 1, verse 8. Jerusalem hath grievously sinned, therefore she is removed. All that honored her despise her, because they have seen her nakedness. Here's what I think is going on here. I believe this is talking about the facade of the elite, the facade of, uh, of what we might call church-going people of that day. When the enemy came in, they ransacked the place. 
See, these people were feared. They were respected by the other nations. They saw them. Uh, and when they came in and they ransacked the place, and they saw the lives they were actually living. They actually saw what was underneath the, the, the things that the suit could not hide, the skirt could not hide, the church attendants could not hide. They saw who they really were, and they realized they were naked, and their sins were open, and the people had no more respect for them because they said, you don't even take it seriously. They saw them for who they really were. I told you a story before when we lived in California. We took our kids to the, um, to the museum in Los Angeles, and they had a... Um, they had an exhibit there, a, temp- a traveling exhibit, but it was uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is awesome. It was an awesome finding, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, they, uh, the, these, uh, the scrolls that were found uh, really showed that God has preserved his word for many years. The Old Testament writings were, were all there and intact, and, uh, and, uh, uh, and it really was awesome uh, blow to the skeptics. It was interesting that they found, they uncovered, as they were, they were uh, uh, digging and, uh, and uncovering, they found pottery, and they found that a lot of the scrolls were hidden in pottery. What was interesting was, in a lot of these houses, in a lot of these uh, in the excavations, what they found was <clears throat> many of these Jewish homes, these Israelite homes, had, um, had a secret closet in them, many of them. And, uh, and while, while the, the community would gather together and they'd have their, their time at temple or they'd have their time uh, you know, at the synagogue or, or whatever it was they were doing, they'd worship together publicly, but at home they each had this little uh, shrine hidden in a closet somewhere. And inside these closets, they had these little figurines, these little goddesses. And, and uh, in many of these, these, uh, these uh, Israelite homes, they had their own, their own pagan practices going on inside their home, while outwardly and publicly, they all followed Jehovah God. Jeremiah says, these people used to respect us, but they don't. They've seen our nakedness. They saw who these people really are. And can I tell you, we will be in the state that Israel was in. We'll be in the state that Jerusalem was in. It's not going to happen when we stop going to church. It's going to happen long before then. Something that's taking place in the private world, in the secret place, closet sins. That's who we really are, and that's really what's going on in our own lives. And let me just tell you, if that doesn't move us, if that doesn't start causing us to weep and to call it to God, I've shared with you before, God, I'm not weeping over sin like I used to. I'm not weeping over, over uh, uh, these things that are even gripping my own life. And until we get to that place where we're just serious with God, God, I am yours, uh, mind, body, and soul, uh, and spirit. I am wholly yours. Then we're just playing a game. We're just playing a game. He saw their nakedness. Or the, the people saw the, the nakedness and they lost respect and, they, and, uh, and he's broken over that. If we're going to see God move and experience a heaven-sent revival, it ought to bother us that our hearts are cold. It ought to bother us that sin doesn't bother us. It ought to bother us that we've sinned against God. Remember Peter, handpicked by Jesus Christ himself. Come follow me. Is there the night that he's about to be betrayed? And he says to Peter, tonight before the cock crows thrice, Peter, you're going to deny me. Publicly, Peter makes this great pledge of allegiance to him. I'll die before I deny you. Amazing what we can do publicly. He's there warming himself by the fire, denies the Lord, and then he hears the very sobering sound of the cock crowing. When he realized what was done, he remembered the words of the Lord. The Bible says he went and he wept bitterly. He wept bitterly. He's sinned against God. He's sinned against the love of God. He sinned, uh, uh, the, you know, one person said this, the wicked pierced the side of Jesus, but sinners 
uh, but the sin, excuse me, the sins of the wicked pierce the side of Jesus, but the sins of the Christian pierce his heart. When was the last time that you sinned against God and he just swept it under the rug? Well, at least it's not as bad as other people. Instead of, instead of coming before God in honest confession, you know, what, you know what real confession is before God? It's crawling into the heart of God and seeing your sin the way he sees it and, saying, and really recognizing how much that, that, you know, against, as David said, against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil, done this wickedness. Against God, that's who our sin is against. Oh, well, it hurt my spouse. Yeah, but you sin against God. Oh, it hurt my children. You sin against God, and those things are bad enough. But let me just say, you've sinned against the one who saved you. It doesn't bother us anymore because it's secret. It's private. <laughs> See, we've gotten so comfortable with the sins around us. We're so callous and cold that our own sins don't bother us. Well, it's a, a little white lie. A little white lie. James 4, 9, and 10, be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Folks, that's revival. Weep and mourn and humble yourself. Get low before God. Afflict yourself before God and let him revive you. You know what we're so good at doing in church, in Christian circles? We muster up an appearance of revival. You know what that is? That's pride. Look how righteous I am. I'm just walking with God. I'm just happy all the time. I'm not saying that you have to walk around. All, hmm. But what I'm saying is there's a difference between kind of acting it and, 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 a lot, and actually walking in that spirit of revival that God does in your heart where the joy of the Lord truly is your strength. I think Christians should be the most joyful people in the world. But we don't know what that really looks like because we're copying everything else. Entertainment is the devil's substitute for joy. So we, 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 we try to, you know, as long as you know, we're, we're doing a great job, the song leading is exciting and the music is happy, the joy of the Lord's here. That's funny because you know where I see the joy of the Lord showing up? When we're mourning, when we're in heaviness and sorrow. Have you ever noticed all the paradoxes in Scripture? Humble yourself that he'll exalt you. The first shall be last, the last shall be first. Lose your life, you'll gain it. Amazing. A good person weeps not because he is more holy. I'm sorry, a godly person weeps not because he's more holy. A godly person weeps because the sins he commits are so much more terrible than somebody who sins who doesn't have a Bible. He weeps because he knows better. He weeps because he knows what his sins mean to God. When was the last time you said to God, sorry? Sorry, Lord. So we've got to get back to where we feel again. God said in, uh, I believe it was in Ezekiel's day, I will remove from them their heart of stone and give to them a heart of flesh. Why? Because our hearts got so hardened. We've got to get to, to seeing our nails, or excuse me, our sins as what's nailing Jesus there to the cross. We've got to get back to seeing what it costs the Savior. One person once said, uh, is the sin that you are engaging in worth Jesus dying for? God help us to quit seeing our sins as trivial. See, when the sins in the church are just as bad as those in the world, it's going to be a response like what the nations that, that, that took uh, uh, Israel captive there, or, you know, they once respected them, they once saw them that way, but now they, they don't. They saw their nakedness. 
And that's why every time, uh, every time a lost person sees a Christian in his hypocrisy, it justifies their own sin. It justifies their own unbelief in their mind. And they say, oh, look, at Christians are hypocrites. I don't need to follow that. Christians are hypocrites. I don't need to believe in their God. Christians are hypocrites. I can go on sinning. It justifies them in their mind. And it will be more tolerable for the day of Sodom and Gomorrah for that day. The third thing we ought to weep for, we should weep over the sins of our land. I'm sorry, uh, I'm sorry, the sons. <laughs> we should weep over the sons of our land. Look at verse number 5, Lamentations 1, verse 5. Look at the last phrase there. Her children are gone into captivity before the enemy. Her children. I can just see Jeremiah seeing the little boys and little girls being marched off into Babylon. I can just see them being taken captive. You know, I can handle almost anything but seeing children suffer. I remember when I was in Iraq, I worked in a unit that uh, flew the Chinook helicopters, and so we were the transporters. We would pick up and drop off infantry guys and different things, but one time we did a mission to go collect body bags. And to take the war to children. Something I'll never forget. Here's Jeremiah, that's what he saw. Between children being taken captive, children in body bags, he wept. He wept because of the trouble that they were in. So here's the reality of the things that the choices that the nation of Israel made is what led to these children being let off. Think about this now. The choices we make are impacting the next generation. The choices we make and the direction that we're setting forth, why do we wait for revival? Why are we crying out to God? Because our children are worth it. What are, what are our children going to have? Have you, ever, have you ever been concerned about the world your children are going to grow up in? I don't think we've ever been more concerned about the, the day and age that our children are going to grow up. And I've said it before, since, since Jaden was a little boy, uh, I, said, I said, I do believe his generation could face prison or worse for standing for the faith. And folks, we're right on track for that. I might not get out scot-free. <laughs> scot-free. Think about Abraham. He went down to Egypt. He brought Lot with him. Comes out of Egypt years later. Abraham's blessed, Lot is blessed. There's not enough room for all their cattle and their herdsmen are fighting. Abraham says to Lot, he says, look, this shouldn't be so, we be brethren. You know, if you go to the left, I'll go to the right and vice versa. And he lifted up his eyes to the well-watered plains of Jordan. You know what they reminded him of? Egypt. And every day, he pitched their tent towards Sodom. It's like seeing Egypt out there. And day in, day out, his wife and his children looked at Sodom, looked at the world. And every day it was pulling at him and pulling at him, so much so that it vexed his righteous soul. Next thing you know, he's in Sodom. But he was just going to be there for a few days. No, no, he's in the gate of Sodom. He sets up home in Sodom. He marries his daughters to the occupants of Sodom, the residents there. See, Abraham brought Lot out of Egypt, but he never got Egypt out of Lot. And the choices he made impacted his nephew and, uh, and his nephew's daughters. 
And let me just say, the choices that we make, our teenagers are watching, and it starts to impact them when we show hypocrisy, and it starts to impact them when we show lack of trust and lack of faith, and it impacts them when we are following after the world and we're looking at these things, and before long, they're going to say, you know what? I've seen the nakedness. I've seen uh, uh, what we're really like, and we're just going to go off on our own way. I have respect, but now I don't, and now I'm gone. And what happened was, as they had turned from God, they weren't trusting in him. They, 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 they were going their own way. They were, uh, they were not heeding the warnings. Before long, captivity comes in. But let me just say, it's not the men. It's not just the men going off to war. It's not just the men and the women. Can you see the kids all lined up in shackles? The little boys and girls being marched off into captivity. Years of hard labor ahead. Years of abuse trafficking and all those things and at that point we'll start to weep hey listen we need to weep but let it not be that we weep tearful tearful regrets but rather tearful repentance better to weep tears of repentance now than to weep tears of regret later Tears of repentance now saying, God, we're going to have a godly home and we're going to set a right example. Then tears of regret later when we say, God, why does my child not look to you? Why does my child have no faith? Why does my child uh, reject God and everything he was raised with? Let me tell you, those tears are much more painful and much more regrettable. Too often we weep after the fact, like Esau. See, Esau wanted the blessing, but he didn't want to live for God who brought the blessing. And after that, he wept and he, and he repented. He, he, he looked for repentance, as the writer of Hebrews says, but he saw no place for it. Though he sought it carefully with tears. That's where so many Christians are. We want the blessing, but we don't live for God who brings the blessing. We, we pray too many emergency prayers. God, get me out of this mess. Get me out of this mess. In 20 or 30 years, many of us are going to be gone. But our kids are still going to be here. Are we weeping tears of repentance now? Or will there be tears of sorrow later when none of them are here? I sure hope that if our children go astray, they go astray climbing over our prayers. They go astray climbing over our tears, right past our weeping and right past the life that we've lived before them. I hope they don't go astray because of us. But that they went astray, climbing over what we've laid out before them. Folks, let's weep for our land. Let's weep for the sins of our land, but let's weep for our children. For our children, we need to see revival for their sake. You know, we see a lot of tears in the Bible. You know some tears? You know some tears are happy tears? Some tears are happy tears. In the book of Lamentation, they're not all sorrowful tears. Some are happy tears. Fourth thing that we should weep for is this. We should weep for the Savior of our land. Look at, uh, look at uh, uh, chapter 3. The fact that you and I are still here, folks, tells me there's still hope. There's still hope. Look at, uh, look at chapter 3, <clears throat> in verse 21. This I recall to mind, therefore have I hope. This is still lamentations. This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. There's still hope. The city's on fire around him. The kids have been carried off into captivity. The women have been taken and abused and killed. And, uh, you know, you think, wow, all is lost. But then he says this, I still have hope. Look at 21 again. This I recall to mind. Therefore have I hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. 
because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. And listen, as long as we're still here, there is hope for revival. As long as we still have breath to praise God and to weep before Him and to cry bitter tears of repentance and say, God, turn us again, O God. Turn us again. Wilt thou not revive us again that my people may rejoice in Thee? And as long as we have that opportunity, as long as we are still here, there is still hope. Why has God not returned? Why has His judgment not come to fruition? Why are we still turning? And by the way, we're seeing all around us, things are lining up, things are getting in place. We're seeing, we're seeing uh, 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 unifying uh, allies being formed. We're seeing all these different things that are lining right up with, with what the Bible speaks of. And I even saw an article this week that, that this year during Passover, they're going to sacrifice a red heifer. This year. But let me ask you this. Why has the Lord tarried his coming? In fact, they asked this question in Peter's day. Where is the promise of his coming? After Peter tells them about this all burning with a fervent heat. Where is the promise of His coming? For since the beginning of time, things have continued as they've been. I need to remind you, the fact that you and I are still here, the Lord is not slack concerning His promises, as some men count slackness. But His long-suffering to us, we're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Hey, there's tears of joy because God's not done. There's tears of joy because revival can still take place. There's tears of joy because, because God still answers prayers and still hears our cries. We ought to go on. Uh, we got to get on our face before God and say to God, thank you, thank you, thank you. Revival is still possible and God can still bring it. There was a, um, years ago, the um, Salvation Army, when they used to be all about salvation, um, General Booth, the leader of the Salvation Army, he, uh, they would train up their young men to go out into these areas and preach, send them as, uh, as evangelists to go out and some of these young men were not getting responses. He would give them the sermons to preach. And he, would, he said, here, here are the sermons. I want you guys to just take these to the communities. I want you to just preach them. And they weren't getting the response that they were wanting. And, and uh, they wrote back to him and said, are we doing something wrong? Is there something else we can do? And, and he said, this time, try tears. Try tears. Have you wept? Have you prayed for them? Have you poured out your hearts before God? Have you stepped into it? And listen, it's just not words on a paper. It's the passion of the preacher. It's the heart of the preacher. Have you wept before God? Have you allowed God to get into, step into that thing and bring a revival? Folks, that's where our heart ought to be. Why is it we go across this, uh, our own city today and people are doing all other kinds of things? Actually, maybe a little less today because it's a little chilly out. But you know what you don't see? You don't see people busting down the doors of the churches. And it almost seems like the only churches that are full are churches that are teaching a false gospel. What's going on? I'll tell you what's going on. God's people have forgotten how to cry. And I'm the first. We've forgotten how to cry. God recognizes our tears. By by the way, remember the woman at the feet of Jesus? She came in, that prostitute woman that got saved. She comes in, and by the way, the boldness of this woman, think about the situation she was stepping into. It was a Pharisee's house, Simon the Pharisee. Comes into this house. You've got religious leaders. You've got Jesus and his disciples. And you have a woman that everybody recognizes as a prostitute. That sounds like her kind of people, isn't it? Can you feel the guilt and the judgment coming down on her? She walks in, and all the people just walked past to get to where Jesus was. But none of that mattered. She falls on her face before Jesus, 
And she starts, she's crying so, such crocodile tears that it's enough to wash his feet and starts mopping it up with her hair. Now, I've talked about that message a lot, but, but ask this question. What was she crying about? What was she crying about? What were those tears about? I think it was tears of joy and gratitude for the one who saved her. It wasn't tears of shame for being there. All that went away. And you know what Jesus equated her tears to? Evidence of the fact that she loved much. Because he knew more than anybody else she'd been forgiven much. But he who been forgiven of little loves little. God recognizes our tears. God remembers our tears, the Bible says. Puts them in jars. God responds to our tears, but you know one day God's going to remove our tears. We ought to weep while we can weep. One day he's going to remove our tears. Revelation 21 in verse 4. It says, And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. For the former things, there will be no more. No more weeping. It's all passed away. And what's done is done. But until then, listen, we need to weep. Until then, we need to feel every, every ounce uh, of the need of revival and the, 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 the need of the desire of our heart to match God's heart. We need to weep. We need to cry. I wonder if from heaven, if God doesn't weep even now. If God doesn't look down and weep over his creation and weep over his people, and let me just say this, weep over his people who know better. His people who have a Bible. And we ought to keep weeping and keep weeping until God sweeps his hand across our face and wipes it away for that last time. Until then, let me weep. Hey, is it nothing to you? All you pass by. Is it nothing to you? Let's stand together. Heads about an eyes closed as the uh, music plays. Could it be we don't have revival because we don't want it? We're not willing to weep for it. Weep for the condition of our land. Does our land need saving? Weep for the condition of the sins. Do we need repentance? Our children. Do they need us to be revived? Can God bring revival? I want to find our place this morning at an old-fashioned altar. We looked last week at God teach us to pray, and my prayer this week is God teach me to cry. Teach me to weep. Until revival comes, may we, may our eyes be as fountains. May we weep and cry out until we see the hand of God move. Spend some time with the Lord as, as God's moved in your heart. Let's, let's come before Him today.